Good morning. It is a privilege to bring the Word of God to you, and we also pray that this is a restful time for Pastor Wes and his family as they're recuperating from a, a long week. And you know how it is sometimes when you're on vacation, you need a vacation from the vacation, so maybe they're feeling some of that right now too. Uh, I know nearly everybody in this room, and, uh, but for those of you that I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name's Alex Kochman. Um, normally I'm leading worship here. Uh, previously, when our church was going through transition, I was a part of our transition leadership team as God was getting ready to call Wes uh, into the pastorate here. I also minister full-time working for ABWE, the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism, as their director of advancement and mobilization. So I have the privilege of working with those that God is calling into career missionary service and guiding them and their sending churches uh, into taking next steps towards the mission field. And so it's a privilege to bring God's word to you together this morning. And uh, let's begin in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you in this strange day in which we live, yet today is the day that you have made, and this is the Lord's day. We want to relish it. We want to revel in you, in your glory, in your gospel. We pray, Father, that your word would not return void today. We pray that you would allow anything of me that is of my flesh to be forgotten this morning, and that the only thing remembered would be what is of you and what your spirit has to say, and we pray that you'd open our hearts to believe and to receive and hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. We ask this in the mighty and powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So our text this morning is Ephesians 6, verse 17, and we'll just pick up the previous verse so that we get the full context. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. And in our journey through the book of Ephesians, we want to give attention to this helmet of salvation. The title of our message this morning is aptly, I think, how to keep your head in 2020. Anyone need help with that? I know I do. And I do pray that God opens what the Spirit would say to the church this morning. It's no coincidence that we find ourselves studying the spiritual armor, the spiritual panoply that God has given us in Ephesians chapter 6, this divine battle armor, because we're in a time that it's never been more evident that we're in a day of strife and conflict collectively. And you don't need me to rehearse through some of these things, but in case you've been living under a rock, a deadly virus has blanketed the world. News, social media, and big tech companies verify some experts while canceling others, crafting narratives and constructing echo chambers that feed tribalism and threaten to divide, yes, even the church. Racial strife has surged, and wounds from racism never fully healed have reopened. Anarchy and lawlessness fill the streets, and cultural revolutionaries are seeking to overthrow the Christian basis of this nation. All sorts of workers, 30 to 40 million, have lost their livelihood. A third of the GDP is gone. And immorality and murder continues in cities from Chicago to Minneapolis to our own York, Pennsylvania. By the way, as of today, the 69th day since the tragic killing of George Floyd, based on Guttmacher, that's a pro-abortion group, based on their statistics from 2014, extrapolating it out to today, approximately 45,643 black babies have been savagely murdered 
via abortion. Meanwhile, in Chicago, 432 have been killed this year alone, violently, as of July 29th. So as Paul told the Ephesians, the day is evil. And we know that. And none of this is to score political or cultural points by putting these things out, because the truth is these dark days touch us as well. We are blessed here to gather for worship, as many churches have struggled to do. But our hearts, my heart, our hearts ache to commune again with the whole body, with all of those watching online. And because when one part of the body suffers, all suffer together, our hearts also break as we hear the news of our dear brother in the Lord and elder Bert's cancer. There's hurt facing our community as well. So praise God that he's brought us to this text at this time. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at how we can stand firm in the evil day, as Paul says in chapter 6, verse 13 of this book. And we know, verse 12, that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So before we discuss the helmet of salvation, this particular piece of the armor, I want to frame for us the issue of spiritual warfare, because our frame of reference for this subject is rather limited. Most of us live pretty vanilla lives. We think of the extremes, on the one hand, of the charismatic movement, where anything wrong in your life is a devil that needs to be cast out. On the other hand, maybe we envision, especially if we don't have a background in the church, perhaps we envision The Exorcist or The Omen or other films of that nature, or the latest Frank Peretti novel, if you prefer. And we know Satan and his forces are real, but we're not intimately equated with what this fight actually looks like. Well, in Ephesus, they lived this stuff. This was their life. Ephesus was contested cosmic geography. It was contested territory. And what do I mean by this? I want to run through some biblical background here. Don't feel the need to turn to all of these passages. Feel free to jot them down for later for review. Test anything that I say against what Scripture says. In Ephesians, excuse me, in Deuteronomy 32, we learned that when God judged the nations at Babel, when he divided the nations at Babel, part of the judgment that he gave on the pagan nations was that they would be dominated by these evil spiritual forces, these spiritual beings, these false gods. Verse 8 in the Song of Moses says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples... Now, that reminds me of Acts 17, right? Paul says he determined the boundaries and allotments of the peoples. But Moses sings when he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So there's this splitting of the Gentile pagan world at Babel, and they're allotted according to the number of the sons of God. Well, if you've read Job 1 and 2, you remember that sons of God is a euphemism for the angelic host. So these spiritual beings... These rulers, powers, authorities entrapped, ensnared the Gentiles throughout all of Old Testament history, claiming to be gods and, dis, uh, and seducing the nations into idolatry. Yet they had real authority. Israel was the exception. Yahweh had married Israel. They were his, but the other nations had been given over. In Psalm 82, however, God signals to us that their time is about to be up. I said... You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. That's verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 82. 
So these principalities and powers, these false gods, their time is up. And then when Jesus of Nazareth arrives on the scene, he comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom, Mark 1.15. Satan offers him all of this authority over the nations if he'll just bow down and worship him. Jesus says no, because he has a better plan of conquest through the cross. You see that in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. And then for three years as Jesus ministers, we know the stories, right? All over the place, demoniacs in ancient Israel are coming to him, throwing themselves down at his feet, saying, don't, don't judge us before the time, right? They know that something is about to shift in history. And then when Satan thinks that he's won at the cross, Jesus flips the script on him. And he disarms and publicly shames the demonic horde by stripping from Satan his greatest weapon against God's people, which is our sin. Because he holds our sin over us and against us as a prosecutorial attorney. You see that in John chapter 12, verse 31, as well as Colossians 2, 15. So Jesus then is raised as ruler of the universe and the cosmic hierarchy flips. Because at least in the ancient perception, conception, it used to be God, angels, man. Well, now a man rules over the angels. A man rules over these spiritual entities and these beings. And they are none too happy about it. So back to Ephesus. Ephesus was a mecca of Greco-Roman polytheistic piety. Remember Acts chapter 19 when the Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel there as a missionary. This is the same place. And when you recognize this background, all of a sudden it all falls into place here. This is the same place, all in chapter 19, where the seven sons of Sceva were embarrassingly defeated and sent packing by a demon-possessed man because they had a botched exorcism and they tried to half-heartedly invoke the names of Jesus and Paul. I adjure you by the names of Jesus and Paul. Well, Jesus I know and Paul I've heard of, but who are you? And they send these sons of Sceva packing, these Jewish exorcists. That's verses 11 through 16. Then the townsfolk here, revival breaks out, and even the Christians come out and burn their spell books in what was worth millions of dollars of books are piled into a heap and burned in verse 19. Then a riot breaks out because the idol-making guild is peeved that no one is worshiping Artemis or Diana anymore, who is the matron deity of the city. And there's rioting, everyone loses their minds, forgets what they're rioting about until finally the town clerk comes out and disperses them all. That's verses 21 and following. Does that sound familiar to any of us? So spiritual warfare meant something in the city of Ephesus to them. Paul was a pioneer missionary going into and writing back to this church in enemy-occupied territory. So it's important that we know that Ephesians chapter 6 is not the first place that Paul picks up on this theme of spiritual warfare. We tend to read that chapter isolated, don't we? And when we get to the armor of God, we go back and we remember the flannel graphs and these sorts of things that we grow up in church remembering. But that's not the first time Paul gets at the idea of spiritual warfare. And I encourage you, I challenge you to read back through the book of Ephesians in the coming weeks and pull out every mention of some of these phrases associated with our spiritual conflict that we know from chapter 6. So in chapter 1, verse 3, we have every blessing in the heavenlies or the heavenly places. That's the same space in the universe that's associated with the powers. In verse 10, chapter 1, God is summing up all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. So there's this victory of Christ that conquers earthly and spiritual spaces. In chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, we read this, that God in Christ raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, that's that same sphere of authority again, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Sounds like chapter 6. 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ, with all his dominion, has been given to us, his body. He can multiply the references. In chapter 2, remember that we used to follow the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan. But we've been raised with Christ, where? Into this heavenly sphere, where Christ has authority over Satan and his horde. Then in chapter 3, Paul is talking about his gospel ministry and the merging of Jew and Gentile into the church. And he says this in verse 10, This is all so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Chapter 3, verse 15, we find out that even these heavenly ranks, these angelic beings, constituted under the authority of God the Father. And of course we know from chapter 5 that the days are evil, and so we are to walk wisely. So here's the main point this morning. When all hell breaks loose, as it was in Ephesus, as it seems to be in our day, when all hell breaks loose, we, in the body of Christ, keep our heads by shielding ourselves with the certain knowledge of salvation in Christ and all its effects. We keep our heads by shielding ourselves with the certain knowledge of salvation in Christ and all its effects. We'll dive into that. But as we go through the armor of God, it's easy to think, well, okay, we're pulling out a three-word phrase. The helmet of salvation. Why would we pull out that one phrase? Are we making too much of that one phrase? I'd encourage us not to think that. Every word is inspired by the Spirit of God. Every verse is breathed out by God and therefore is profitable, 2 Timothy 3 tells us. We can profit from this. And as we think, well, what was Paul drawing on? We know that Paul was probably under house arrest, as he was at the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. And perhaps he was eyeing up the Roman soldier standing next to him and looking at his battle array, and perhaps he drew inspiration from that. You might also ask, well, if he's just in house arrest in Rome, would there be a fully armored, combat-ready soldier there? That could be the reference. Or Paul is going back to Isaiah chapter 59. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 59. This is a text we've come to before in this series, and I'd like to camp out on it. Starting in verse 11. The whole chapter is wonderful. I encourage you to read it. The prophet Isaiah says, We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following our God speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. Watch this. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Now pause. Does any of this sound remotely relatable? The Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation for his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. 
According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his enemies, repayment to his adversaries. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the, sh- from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So he puts on a helmet of salvation. God does. What is this helmet? What is salvation? A commentator from 1890, J. Agar Beat, defines salvation in this way, a present deliverance from sin to be consummated, completed, made full, made whole, in eternity by complete deliverance from every kind of evil. A present deliverance from sin to be consummated in eternity by complete deliverance from every kind of evil. That's the type of helmet that Yahweh in Isaiah 59 himself puts on. It's the initiative of God taken in the incarnation of Jesus Christ to come to earth fully enfleshed and accomplish redemption for his people and establish his kingdom. There was no intercessor. He looked, he saw that there was no man. It displeased him. So Yahweh, God, stepped into human flesh, fully clothed, ready to fight. Make note of this. Whatever your assessment of the things happening right now in 2020 is, make no mistake, don't use this word, unprecedented. They're not unprecedented. There's nothing unprecedented about sinful people collectively sinning and experiencing the results, the consequences of their sinful choices as a society. The precedent is all throughout Scripture. Scripture is the story of nations rising and falling because they didn't seek God. Redemption history is littered with the graves of these types of nations. Yet, in Isaiah 59, it's when the old covenant people of God are literally being invaded by foreign armies, and the Spirit of God was withdrawing from their midst, preparing to give them over to judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. It's then that we read, the Lord saw it, and he stepped in. His own arm accomplished salvation for him. He saw no intercessor. There was no mediator. There was no Messiah yet. No king, no prophet, no priest, no president was able to repair the breach. No one could. The chasm of sin was too great. And the gospel that Isaiah preached 800 years before the coming of Christ is that Yahweh himself would step in and mediate, equipping himself for the spiritual battle, and that his action in time and history would have three effects, and we see these in verses 18, 19, and 20. Verse 18, the judgment of the enemies of God according to their deeds, so will he repay. Verse 19, global worship, missions. They will fear his name from the west and from the rising of the sun. And third, redemption for the people of God. Verse 20, a redeemer will come to Zion. So this is the background that Paul is giving us for the exhortation to put on the helmet of faith. Excuse me, the helmet of salvation. So for us to put on, okay, how do I put on this helmet of salvation? Let's consider these two points, and these are the the two points in which we'll spend the rest of our time. First, we've already addressed this. Christ, as risen, exalted Lord over every cosmic authority, shares that authority and victory with his body, the church. Christ, as risen, exalted Lord over every cosmic authority, shares the authority and victory of his reign with his body, the church. Remember what we read a few moments ago in Ephesians chapter 1, 
that not only does he reign over all the principalities and powers that used to deceive the nations, but that he, as head over all things, with all things under his feet, has been given to the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here's the Lord of the universe. Church, you get him. He's yours. And he's not just yours out there. He's your head. You're as attached to him as your neck is to your own head. He's yours. He rules for you. And in his rule and reign, he wears this helmet of salvation. But going back to Isaiah, if the helmet of salvation that Isaiah 9, 59 gives us is God's action in Christ to accomplish salvation, and we know that salvation isn't what I do, amen? I do not save myself. I don't strap myself up for battle and try hard and save myself. That's not how this works. If salvation is not something I accomplish, yet the helmet of salvation is all about what Christ accomplishes, then how am I supposed to wear it? What is the point of reference there? What is Paul saying? How is it that I am to don this helmet of salvation? Am I supposed to incarnate? Am I supposed to die and rise for the sins of my people? Of course not. Isn't it just for Christ to wear? And if it's just his conquering, that's great. But that doesn't help me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm no savior. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. I can't do anything about it. Might as well not polish brass on a sinking ship or rearrange the deck chairs of the Titanic. Might as well batten down the hatches and, and wait to be whisked away so that I don't have to suffer in the present age. That's not how we're to deal with this text. The helmet of salvation is Christ's helmet. It's the armor of God. He wears it in Isaiah 59, but there's two reasons, two subpoints, points A and B, that this helmet is ours too. First, because we are in Christ, because we are his body, then what's true of Christ becomes true for us too. What's true of Christ becomes true of us too. And hence, we are to clothe ourselves in Christ and his attributes. The phrase in Christ is littered throughout this whole letter. And note that this whole book of Ephesians is about one new man. And in this man, the head is Christ and the body is the church, this cosmic humanoid sharing in his reign. In fact, in chapter 2, when the barrier between Jew and Gentile is broken down, in verse 15, Paul says, God did this so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. One body, Jew and Gentile, Christ at the head. So making peace. This body is indwelt by the Spirit, in verse 22. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's one body and one spirit, chapter 4, verse 4. And from the head, the spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit, chapter 4, are poured out throughout the whole body, just like we see in Psalm 133, that the anointing oil on the high priest drips from the head and is poured over the whole body. Christ, the head, distributes his spiritual gifts, his power to the whole church. Again, it's about this one cosmic man imagery. In Ephesians 4, we see that. Everyone in the body is growing up into the head. In chapter 5, we see that we are one with Christ just as a husband is one body with his wife. And hence, we are to put off the old man and put on the new. We see throughout chapter 4, verses 22 and 24. And what does this man do? This man with Christ as the head, with us as the body. First, he walks in love. In chapter 5, he is to walk in love. And in chapter 6... He is to stand 
in the day of battle. God is building a new man with Christ at the head, a new humanity. So if Christ puts on a helmet of salvation, we receive that. We wear that. We receive his work. We equip ourselves, likewise, with the zeal for the Lord and the boldness that we're supposed to have following this heavenly warrior king. He puts on a helmet of salvation. We're in him. We're in Christ. We wear that same helmet of salvation. Romans 13, 14. We are to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And he won't let us be defeated. The battle armor is not just for him to wear. It's for us too. Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He shares this victory with his church. Amen. Or Psalm 72, verses 11 through 14. May all kings bow down and fall before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. We are his body. He will not return to a sick, weak church. He'll nourish us as a man cherishes his bride, nourishes his own flesh, cares for his own body. He'll see that his body, the church, is built and that the gates of hell do not prevail against it. We're in him. We're in Christ. And so if he's wearing a helmet of salvation, we can receive that. We can embrace that. We can ready ourselves with the same zeal by which Christ is conquering his enemies. And second, how are we to wear this helmet? Well, because Christ accomplished salvation for us. We don't save ourselves. He did it for us. That's why Paul says, take better translated, receive the helmet of salvation. If you were a Roman soldier, if you were getting ready for battle, we just read you would take the shield, the shield of faith with which to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. If you're holding a shield, the last two armaments, the sword, the helmet, are going to be handed to you by the armor bearer because you already have a hand that's taken. And so you take the helmet of salvation. The armor bearer puts it on your head. And then you take the sword of the spirit. And in the same way, the helmet of salvation, our salvation, is not something that we reach out and grasp for ourselves. It's given to us. Salvation is a gift. By grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, so that no one would boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, that we may, be, that we may do good works. Ephesians 2, 8-10. through 10. We receive the helmet of salvation. So what does this look like in practical terms? How do I take the helmet of salvation? This is our second and final point of the message, which is simply an exhortation. In Christ, shield yourself with the hope brought by the certain knowledge of salvation in Christ and all its effects. In Christ, we are to shield ourselves with the hope brought by the certain knowledge of salvation in Christ and all its effects. So in any combat situation, whether you're a war veteran or whether you just play too much Call of Duty, everybody knows that the headshot is the critical blow from which there's no recovery. Right? You get the headshot, you get the drop on somebody. Our enemy would love nothing more than to get the drop on us and to finish us with a single round. 
That's why the Roman soldier would wear a helmet to protect mostly from arrows coming from above, things that you couldn't immediately protect yourself from, unseen threats from above. So what's it mean to guard against the critical spiritual headshot that will end your walk with the Lord in a moment? It has to do with hope. Paul, helpfully, also mentions the helmet of salvation in another letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, where he says this, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And this is not hope as in, I hope football comes back in the fall. This is not hope as though, yeah, I hope the economy comes back. This is certain anticipation. This is firm expectation. This is looking forward to what you know is coming. And your firm expectation of salvation is how you will keep your head in the day of battle. Knowing it, grasping it, seeing it from afar, but persevering towards it. This is all of New Testament for you, persevering towards this goal. Consider what Jesus says when he's warning the first century Christians about the invasion from Rome. He says in Luke 21, verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, for your redemption is drawing near. Straighten up, raise your heads. We ought not to be losing our heads in this day and age. We should be the straightest standing warriors on the battlefield. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces love, and love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then he says in chapter 8, verses many of us know well, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he can see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. By patience, by hope, you will keep your head. Maybe you're wondering... Hope and salvation, I know that I was saved. You're telling me to look backwards? I know that I was saved. It was 1983. Walked down the aisle just as I am, was playing for the 847th time. I know that I'm saved. But in Scripture, salvation is not just a past event that we look back on. We use it that way in our context. But salvation, like the God who gives it, spans past, present, and future. And there's salvation past which is the accomplishment of Christ in his death and resurrection 2,000 years ago, applied to the believer when the Holy Spirit worked in your heart, converted you, flooded your heart with faith, opened your eyes, united you to Christ's saving work, gave you repentance. That's what Ephesians 2 is talking about. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There's salvation past. There's also salvation in the present tense. It's a continued manifestation of that initial faith in Christ, which continues in your life as you cling to him, as you persevere towards eternal life. You grab onto Christ. You don't let go. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. 
Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, Paul says, which you received and in which you stand, that's present, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Christ is holding on to us. We're holding on to him, albeit weakly. But there's future salvation, too. There's this future hope, and it's not an uncertain thing. It's not aspirational. It's a grounded confidence. Paul already prayed earlier in the letter, Ephesians 1.18. He said, he prayed that the eyes of their hearts, the Ephesians, would be enlightened, that they would know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. It's a future inheritance that we receive in eternity. And we're so sure of that future that we have in Christ to look forward to. And listen, we're not saying just focus on heaven, ignore everything happening in the world. That's not what this is. This is not pie-in-the-sky piety. But it's so certain what awaits us in Christ that it breaks into the present. It floods into the present in our hearts. The ground of our hope and salvation is, after all, the love of a God who stands outside time and who decreed who he would love and who he would save from eternity past before we ever did anything right or wrong. So salvation future is that moment when we stand with Christ in glory face to face, free from sin, raised from the dead with new bodies to live in a new earth with all the elect of God from history. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. It says good as done. The fact that we're saved now, that we're converted, that we're trusting in Christ, following him imperfectly, is a seal that proves that we belong to that day that's coming. In him you also, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So winding down, where does this leave us? Helmet of salvation, let's connect the dots from Isaiah to Ephesians 6 to now to the day of glory. Well, we look back at the Old Testament and we see that Christ, Isaiah 59, seeing all hell breaking loose in the world, when there was no one else to act, stepped into history to dismantle the principalities and powers, to save his people, to bring recompense to his enemies, and to glorify the triune God. He is strapped on a helmet of salvation, a helmet of divine rescue, and has drawn you to himself and me to himself to redeem us from the present evil age. You've been saved the moment that Christ opened your eyes to see him and brought you to repentance and faith. You are being saved as Christ clings to you and you cling to him. And you will be saved on the final day when Christ's conquest is complete, every enemy is brought under his feet, and his whole church, his body, his bride, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, tramples underfoot every foe, every argument that raises itself against the knowledge of God, every cosmic rule and demonic stronghold, every bit of sin and evil, even death itself, and we will be raised from the dead. Take up your cross and take up your salvation as a gracious gift, just as the armor bearer would hand you the helmet of salvation. Persevere through the mental assaults, the spiritual fatal headshots, the challenges of the enemy, the temptation, the hopelessness imposed by suffering. You can know that you know that you know that you know that Christ has saved you. 
you can know that your salvation is secure. And you can arm yourself with the same mindset as you stand in the evil day and make war on the already crumbling kingdom of darkness through prayer, through preaching, through praise. We are in Christ, armed to the teeth, suffering together, growing in relationship into our glorious head, stomping on the head of our ancient foe, even while we keep our heads inside the protective shield of our mighty Savior's perfect rescuing work. And as we reflect on this, there's two types of people in the room or two types of people watching online. First would be those who may not yet believe. Maybe you don't sense that salvation is a helmet protecting you from anything. Maybe you're still scared of the judgment of God. You haven't been rescued. You're afraid of where the world is going. You've not trusted in Christ yet as your Savior. You don't know that you know that you know. God stands over you as a judge, not as a father or a friend or a piece of equipment in your armor. And this message of salvation sounds foreign and naive. Know this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our world is experiencing right now the wrath of God for its sin, which mostly is God simply giving us what we've said we've wanted all along. We have sinned, we've all broken the law of God. You have broken the law of God by lying, cheating, all of the things that we do, failing to honor God as we ought. But Christ has died. He came armed for battle, he took the headshot. He died in the place of sinners. He took the wrath of God. And then he rose victorious over suffering, death, and evil. He stands as king and judge. And whoever comes to him, whoever casts themselves upon him for salvation, whoever calls on his name will be saved. Romans 10, 23. You can know this hope. Christ has died and risen. Repent and believe and be saved today. That's an invitation to all. And as we go to the Lord's table, in which Ricardo will lead us in a few moments, for those who already know Christ, for those who have this salvation, who are believers in the room, the vast majority of us here, as we seek to guard our spiritual lives and cling to this hope of salvation, protect ourselves by knowing what's coming for us in eternity, note that the command, you, put on the helmet of salvation, note that that word, you, is plural. It's not singular. We don't have a plural you. In York, you might hear y'all, you might hear yins, you might hear use guys, you might hear use. I don't think there's any accepted English standard for what is the plural of you. But in Greek, this is plural. You are to do these things. You are to put on the helmet of salvation collectively, together. You are to take up the armor of God. So if armor is what a body wears, this jacket, it's on my torso, tracking with me. If armor is what a body wears... And if the body of Christ is the church, then we can't do this alone. If you're wondering why you feel hopeless in this evil day, do not exclude yourself from the fellowship right now. Some of you have perfectly legitimate reasons to keep your distance for health reasons. Some of you need to come back. Be wise, of course. But what does it profit if we gain perfect health in the world but starve our souls? I would plead with you, do not cut yourself off from the fellowship of the body of Christ. Let's together take up the helmet of salvation from our Lord. Let's remind each other of the certain hope of salvation. Encourage each other. Preach this gospel to each other. 
Don't give way to despond or angst or conspiracy theories or fixation on the problems in the world. Let's be realists, yes. But let's also be realists about the greater reality coming to us of salvation. The incorruptible, unfading, undefiled inheritance awaiting us if we just press on. And make no mistake, the Paul who wrote these words in Ephesians 6, church history tells us, lost his head. Yet in Luke 21, 18, we also read, even though we'll be hated by all for his name's sake, yet not a hair of our heads will perish. You may lose your head, but not a hair will fall from your head. So stand. And Father, as we come to the table this morning, we pray that you would remind us of the certain hope that we have of salvation that's coming to us. We pray that you would remind us of the zeal, the passion, the bravery, the courage that drove Christ to die in our place and rise to invade this world with his kingdom. And we pray that that would give us a firm hope through which we can survive these strange days as a light, as a witness, filled with hope, filled with joy, so that even if we lose our jobs or our livelihoods or our reputations or our old friendships or our relationships with family members or our heads, that we would know that in Christ not a hair would fall from our heads, not a hair would perish. Remind us of this as we come to the table this morning, Father. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.